from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. When Joe Biden moved into the White House, he outlined four pillars of his presidency. One was COVID, and they did a couple of COVID stimulus bills and assistance bills early in the year. The other three pillars were climate, equity, and workforce, or the economy. And those are all still part of what we've been working on. Those other three priorities are all tied together in this big bill called the Build Back Better Act. It's a nearly $2 trillion social spending package that expands childcare, healthcare, education, and workforce training programs. It is vast. And the bill has some environmental heft as well. Half a trillion dollars in the package would fund research and deployment of clean energy. This includes everything from wind and solar to batteries to hydrogen to carbon capture to electric vehicles. It would be the biggest American investment in climate technologies and programs ever. It's a very large bill. It's full of a lot of programs that are really great for climate. That is Katherine Hamilton. She's worked in Washington for three decades lobbying for clean energy programs. She actually helped write some of the climate language in the Build Back Better Act. And it's not often that a chance like this comes along. The reality is that climate policy making at the federal level is highly partisan. So Democrats need to control the White House and both houses of Congress to pass anything consequential. 2022 is a midterm election year, which means Biden might just have one shot to get the most consequential climate bill in U.S. history passed. If he loses those, it will be exactly what happened to President Obama when the Congress flipped and he ended up not being able to get as much done as he wanted to. This is kind of the chance to get it done when you have everybody on your side. Well, not everybody. There's one person with the power to make or break Biden's climate agenda. That is West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. Manchin represents a very red state, and there's a wide gap between what he and progressives are willing to spend. Democrats have a one-vote majority in the Senate, and without Manchin's vote, Build Back Better can't pass. So Senator Manchin all along has said, here are some parameters that you know I would like to set forward. And Joe Manchin said, I'm happy to do it at one and a half trillion dollars. And here are all the things I'm willing to support. Here are the things I would not support. And Chuck Schumer agreed to all of those. And not surprisingly, Chairman Manchin, who's chairman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee in the Senate, has stuck to his guns and said, these are the things I agree to. And he's moved a little bit on them, but he was not going to move a lot. And so when a close to $4 trillion bill was introduced with the hopes that Joe Manchin would come along, it was not very realistic. Early in the legislative process to get Joe Manchin's support, Democrats split apart negotiations around the infrastructure bill and the social spending bill. The idea was to get Manchin what he wants on infrastructure, and then maybe he'll come around on Build Back Better. The infrastructure bill passed in November, and then the House passed its version of Build Back Better. But Senate negotiations stalled. Manchin dug in. And the hope was we're very close by Christmas, and Christmas is just such a good break for everybody. Everybody can go home and hug their families and hopefully not get COVID and come back, and there will be a fresh start. And it just couldn't happen before the end of the year. On the Sunday before Christmas, Manchin went on Fox News and said he was done. So today, right now, what's the state of play? If I can't go home and explain it to the people of West Virginia, I can't vote for it. And I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. You're done. This is, this is a no. This is a no. 
on this legislation. I have tried everything I know to do. Progressive Democrats who'd been pushing for the bill were furious. His decision is being taken as pure betrayal. We all knew that uh, Senator Manchin couldn't be trusted. Um, you know, the, the excuses that he just made, um, I think, are a complete bull****. Progressives say they predicted that the massive spending bill would fall apart once it was decoupled from the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted, maybe they'll believe us next time. The reactions from Democrats and from the climate community made it seem like the bill was dead. But behind the scenes, it is still very much in play. The media spends a lot of time creating drama in areas where there's a lot of negotiation. Um, there's a lot of discussion that has to happen to get to a place where you have people in a very big tent party that they can all agree on. And so I think a lot of it was um, media speculation. A lot of it was beating up on Joe Manchin and... And then part of it was, well, what can really happen? And can everybody just take a break and go and cool off a little bit? And then we can have a real discussion. Are you telling me not to dramatize this story? Yeah, I always tell people, just don't read the paper. Then you'll be <laughs> fine. You'll be like me. You'll be endlessly happy and optimistic. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. A year of tense negotiations inside the Democratic Party around social spending has put Biden's climate agenda at risk. But it's not over yet. This week, an optimistic take on the path forward for America's most ambitious climate bill. Faced with a surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. So back to Katherine Hamilton. She's chair of the D.C. public policy firm called 38 North Solutions. She pushes for laws that advance climate-positive technologies. She has a lot of wins under her belt in Congress, but she's also seen how things can fall apart very quickly. Like in 2010, when Senate Democrats couldn't pass Waxman-Markey. They were so close, but ultimately failed at getting a law capping carbon emissions across the finish line. I lived through the last climate fight, <laughs> so I know what it's like to get to the very end, to have it pass in one chamber and then barely not pass in the other. And, you know, I have to feel like now we have the public much more on our side. There is so much more grassroots support for climate action. And I think that means that we have the power to do something and the will to do something, and we just have to do something. More than a decade after the failure of Waxman-Markey, Build Back Better is America's shot, quite possibly our only shot for at least the next couple of years, to get something ambitious done on climate change. It pulls together $555 billion in investment to get vast amounts of clean energy built fast. So the climate piece really funds all of the agencies of government that focus any amount of attention on climate change or energy. And that includes grants, direct grants. It includes loans for all kinds of clean technologies. It includes really creative funding mechanisms. And it also includes tax credits. So what this allows the government to do is to fill the gaps 
that the private sector won't fill to accelerate and catalyze additional technology and to also then set a market signal for corporations and the private sector by including tax credits. It's essentially taking a half a trillion dollars, give or take, and deploying it to programs throughout government that already exist so that you can filter that money into the clean energy economy as quickly as possible. Yes, it supercharges the energy transition. The environmental and political stakes are way higher for this climate bill than they were in 2009 and 2010 when Democrats were trying to pass cap and trade. Climate pollution has steadily increased globally over the last decade. That means we need to make even steeper cuts and spend more money to prevent catastrophic temperature rise. And President Biden explicitly ran on a climate platform. When he entered office, he pledged to slash economy-wide emissions by half in a decade. That is a tall order. Last April, he invited top world leaders to his own climate summit at the White House, and he vowed to hit that target. This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. Time is short, but I believe we can do this. And I believe that we will do this. This bill is so important for a couple of reasons. One is he ran on climate. He was voted into office based on a climate platform. So domestically, it's really important for him. But then also internationally, he went to Glasgow to show leadership, to show that the United States is back into the global community on a clean energy transition. And this is such a big piece of how he can prove that that is the case. Yeah, I've seen analysis showing that this bill in particular gets the U.S. halfway toward meeting the Biden administration's goal of slashing greenhouse gas emissions across the economy by half by 2030. So this is highly consequential. Yeah, if this bill gets us halfway to Biden's goal, you only have to look at what will then be the broader market implications and what then will states take on. So you could see this bill catalyzing additional action so that we can really make it to the full goal. President Biden's reputation is a deal maker as a senator who has consistently made deals across party lines. He framed himself as a president who would be able to do that. And so this bill is not only important for the sake of the climate, but also for his reputation as a deal maker and someone who can pull together these competing parties, some of whom are in his own party and make something happen. What are the consequences for President Biden as dealmaker? So President Biden has made a big deal with the infrastructure bill. Remember, that is bipartisan. So he was able to bring back very disparate parties into that bill. This Build Back Better Act was never going to be a bill that Republicans could agree to. And Republicans are pretty much lockstep with each other on all of this. There won't be people who are leaving the party to vote for this bill. It really is a Democratic bill. And the Democratic Party is a much bigger tent. So you have people who are much more moderate. There have others who are much more progressive. And he has to pull those together. And so far, it's been, he's been doing negotiations in a way that 
I would expect them to happen. Sometimes they're messy, but that's okay. It doesn't mean that we're not moving forward. And it doesn't mean that he's not a good deal maker. He's in a very different place than, for example, President Obama was even when he first got in, in that there just aren't that many moderate Republicans anymore. And so cutting deals really means about how do you work with your own party? And that brings us back to West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin, whose sole no vote could completely derail Build Back Better. So coming up after the break, can Biden cut a deal with the one person in his own party holding it all up? Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. Joe Manchin has become one of the most consequential people for Joe Biden's presidency, and now for climate change. He's a moderate Democrat in a red state, and he has a very complicated relationship with energy. Manchin is chair of the Senate Energy Committee. He favors land conservation. He knows climate change is a problem. He's supported plenty of legislation promoting clean energy. But he also has direct financial ties to a large coal plant in West Virginia. And according to the New York Times, he's received more oil, coal, and gas money than any other senator this election cycle, a sign of the power he holds right now. And environmental groups are taking notice of that power. Earlier in negotiations around Build Back Better, Manchin rejected the idea of a national clean energy target, a key piece of Biden's agenda. And now he appears to be rejecting the entire package. But Catherine Hamilton says that isn't the case. It's more nuanced than that. Senator Manchin has to walk a fine line in a very red state to make sure that he's able to accommodate the views of the people who elect him while also thinking and being very thoughtful about climate. Interestingly, when he and Lisa Murkowski were co-chairing basically the Energy Committee in the last Congress, and she's Republican from Alaska, she took him to Alaska on a field trip to show him how bad the climate impact was in her state. And he really started internalizing climate. So I don't think that that is something that he questions at all. And certainly his staff are very thoughtful about how they approach climate and climate policy. And I don't think that that will change. When Senator Manchin went on television and said he was not going to vote for this version of the bill, a lot of folks in progressive circles were outraged. And within the climate community, many people took to Twitter and stipulated that the bill is dead, that he wrote off the next generation's future, that somehow this bill was done. And that's not what happened. Shortly after, Senator Manchin and the White House started talking again. And it looks like headed into this year, we could be back on track. Where are we? So remember, Senator Manchin has not quibbled much other than with the clean electricity standard. With the climate provisions, he has been supportive of the tax provisions. He said publicly that we need more funding for energy storage and transmission. So that is not something I think he has really come down hard on. There are other pieces, the social programs that he's had more issue with, the spending levels he's had issue with, but not with the climate piece. 
I think we'll get this done. I'm very hopeful that they'll work out the differences that they have, which I don't think are very many, and that we'll get a real bill that takes serious climate action and that codifies a lot of what we've needed to codify over the last decade. What's the optimistic take on how this is going to play out in 2022? The optimistic take for me is January, maybe February. I don't think we're going to go much beyond March, uh, certainly. And they're so close that I think it wouldn't take long at all to get this over the finish line in the month of January once they resolve some of the sticking points. And the pessimistic take? I know you're not much of a pessimist. I'm not a pessimist, (laughs) but (laughs) if we don't get it done, I'm sure that the administration will do everything they can. They'll try to maximize the impact of the infrastructure bill, which has a lot of really good programs in it. They'll try to use appropriations, which are government funding of programs to try to give those programs as much money as they can. And we'll try to move forward. I do think, though, that this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get some really major things done on climate change. The implicit thesis of Build Back Better is that you can create something like a Green New Deal without calling it a Green New Deal. That there are all sorts of places that exist today where dollars can be deployed to accelerate the clean energy transition and that could have far-reaching consequences for employment, worker transition, deployment of renewable energy. And now we're, you know, testing that thesis. Do you think we're going to get something that looks like a mini Green New Deal or will it be much smaller than that? You can create a narrative and semantics around anything you want. I do think that this will be a Green New Deal in some form. This will be the most that's ever been given to climate. But let's take one specific example of something I've been working on for the last couple of years, which started as the National Climate Bank. Then it was called the Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator when it passed in the House three times. Now it's called the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. It doesn't matter what you call it. It's going to do the same thing. It's going to get money out the door to finance clean energy projects and deploy much faster than we already are. And I would just say in every single piece of this bill, you will find programs like that that are going to really catalyze and accelerate the deployment of clean energy and our transition to a zero-emission future. Every time something goes off the rails, I see energy Twitter, and usually it's a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of angry threads. And then I talk to you, and I feel like you are far more optimistic. Should I just stop reading Twitter? Yeah. (laughs) There's nothing good that can come out of obsessing about Twitter. Yes, you will find angry threads. Um, I was off Twitter the entire holiday season and boy, it felt great. It did indeed. But but seriously, I mean, do you have a lot of confidence? I, I, I look at what's being said online and people are essentially acting as if this bill is dead. And then I'm hearing you say, there's actually just a couple important sticking points. This is stretching on longer than we thought, but a deal is still very much in play. Um, you still feel pretty good about this? Absolutely. I am. It is just a flesh wound. <laughs> <laughs> this bill will get over the finish line.
Catherine Hamilton is the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions, and she talked to us while holed up in her house during a major snowstorm. Well, here we are in the middle of a snowstorm here in Washington, D.C., and I wonder how many people will be trotting out the old, but it's snowing, it can't be global warming. (laughs) The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Dalvin Abouage, Daniel Waldorf, and Alexandria Herr. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our theme. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to the Canary Media team for their partnership. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners. We appreciate your support. As we're getting off the ground with this new show, please show your support by sharing a link on social media or giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's so incredibly helpful. And before you go, make sure to listen to our companion podcast. It's called Catalyst with Shale Khan. And investor Shale Khan is digging deep into how money is moving into climate technologies, what business models are working, and how to decarbonize difficult sectors of the economy. Find it at canarymedia.com or any podcast app. Thanks a lot, folks. Join us here next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. Stephen Lacey.